All right, let's open up to our scriptures. I was just having a conversation. People were wondering, what am I going to do this morning? Last year, we were in Jonah, so we had Christmas in Nineveh. And someone was asking me, well, are we going to have Christmas in Babylon this this, uh, Christmas? And we are not going to have Christmas in Babylon. We're actually going to go to the original Christmas story. And those of you that are visiting, you see the word scripture meditation. I've decided I will never do this again. I never do a meditation that lasts. You think of a meditation, you think of a shorter version of a sermon, and it's just not going to happen. So we have a full-fledged sermon. There will never be in the future that word scripture meditation again unless I can get it to 10 to 15 minutes. So we have a sermon. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 and 35 together. Uh, My wife and I were in campus ministry for a while in Boston, and we worked with various students throughout Boston. We worked with BC students. We worked with BU students. We worked with Wellesley students, MIT students, Harvard students. There's 300,000 college students in the Boston area. And that was the target in the campus ministry that we were a part of. But one day a week, we would drive north for 30 minutes and we'd go to a place called Wenham, Massachusetts. And we would go to a campus called Gordon College. And it was a Christian school. And our one day a week Uh, was designed to start a campus ministry at this Christian school just north of Boston in Wenham, Massachusetts. So we talked with the faculty and the administration and got approval to come on campus. And then one day a week, we'd meet with students during the day and then have a large group meeting later that night. Uh, This went on uh, for a full year. And truth be told, uh, the drive up and the drive back, I would turn to my wife of seven months and I complained the whole ride up and I complained the whole ride back. What was my complaint? My complaint was, honey, we're just wasting our time here. We're wasting our time. I mean, there are 300,000 unbelieving college students in Boston, and these are nice Christian kids. But we're wasting our time when there's so many unreached to reach. Right? Well, this week, I got an email. This past week, and it was from an old campus ministry friend who was trying to track us down through the via Internet. Finally found uh, some connection and emailed the church. And this long lost friend uh, tells a story that she uh, had a parent teacher conference two weeks ago with her sixth grade for her sixth grade child. And while she was talking with the teacher, the teacher began to share how the teacher had come to faith in Christ. And as the teacher was explaining how she came to faith in Christ, she said, yeah, I was in a Bible study my freshman year in a small Christian school just north of Boston, about 30 minutes, called Gordon College. And I don't remember, I, I don't remember the last name of those two, that couple that taught that Bible study, but their first name was Jeff and Nancy. This old friend said that uh, she started, as she wrote in her email, I started weeping during our conference time right in front of her. She'd had no idea what was going on, and I just broke down and started crying, she said. She said, partly because it was a moving story. This girl grew up in poverty, yet she ended up at Gordon College, a cool story in itself. But partly because it confirms our call in some ways to continue laboring for college students, she said. But mostly because I was so thankful for you and your wife and your work at Gordon College way back in 93 with an unchurched student who is now greatly shaping my own child. 
I mean, I, when I got to that last sentence, I just sat back in my chair, stared at the screen, absolutely stunned. Completely humbled. And overwhelmed at the grace of God. That the grace of God would use a complainer like me. And as one person made very famous and has made his life on this particular phrase, now I knew the rest of the story, right? And I wonder, do we know the rest of the story behind the Christmas story? Is there a rest of the story behind this story that we celebrate today and tomorrow and basically for about five weeks called Advent during the Christmas season, right after Thanksgiving? Do we know the rest of the story? Is there a rest of the story about the birth of Christ? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You can imagine what's going on in her mind. She's trying to interpret what's taking place, and is this for Good, or is this for ill, right? And the angel said to her, knowing, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will, I, how will this be? Since I am only a virgin and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And then behold, your relative Elizabeth and her old age has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we do thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. And we thank you it endures forever because of what your son has done. The son of God. The word that became flesh. And so, oh, Lord, we acknowledge that we desperately need him. We desperately need the grace he alone gives. He alone purchased. He alone accomplished. So even now, Lord, would you exalt him by shedding abroad your grace into our lives? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we know that a true Lord of the Rings fan is not someone that has in their possession the three-volume work or the trilogy, right, of Tolkien's trilogy. And it's not just having the three DVDs that come with that trilogy. We know that a true Lord of the Rings fan must have the extended version of the three DVDs. Not just three hours, but four plus hours of the movies, correct? Because we know that in the extended version, it kind of is a little more faithful to the book. And we know that the extended version gives you a more global view and fills in more 
color and and makes the tapestry of the story even greater. And there's a, a greater epic that even unfolds in the extended view, correct? Well, we need to hear an extended view of the Christmas story. We need a little more color to the Christmas story. I've got a test for us. When you hear this, I want you to give your honest feedback of what first comes to your mind. When you hear the word Son of God, what do you first think of? When you hear Son of God, what immediately comes to your mind right now? Be honest with yourself. Okay? Now, when you hear the word Son of God, do you first think of the divinity of Jesus? In other words, when I talk about the divinity of Jesus, we're talking about God being 100% God. You're talking about what's called ontological essence. That means in his nature. My wife loves my big words. In his nature. I feel good about them, though. In his nature, he's 100% God. Ontological essence means he is God. Do you think of son of God? He is God, God's son. 100% God, the divinity of Jesus, the second person in the Trinity. Is that what you think of? Or do you think of what's called the humanity of Jesus? In other words, it's not his ontological sonship, but his covenantal sonship. Do you know the difference? You need to. Because these two are used interchangeably throughout the gospel stories and interchangeably throughout Paul and the writers in the New Testament and interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. In other words, if you just blow by Son of God and you immediately think divinity or you immediately think humanity, we might be missing part of the picture. When we get to the covenantal sonship, what we get there is that Jesus is the perfect man. He's everything Adam wasn't. He was the faithful witness. He was the one that lovingly and loyally and law-keepingly obeyed God every day of his life, from infancy on up to his eventual death and resurrection. Here, he's like you and me. And he had to be. Now, where do you hear both? Those that are dishonest are saying, both! I got divinity and humanity when I said that. Well, what we need today, our vision of God, our vision in the church, our vision of our own lives, our vision in the church's mission, our vision in our Bible reading, we need an extended version of the Christ event. We need the extended version. We need the bigger story. We need more color. We need more glory. We need more tapestry to the story. In other words, we come to the birth of Jesus and this birth. I, we, we went and even saw the movie the other day. And it's just what I wanted to do right at the end of the movie. I don't know those of you that saw it. What, what did you think at the end of it? I was thinking, keep going. Right. I mean, we're just getting started. Who is he? For me. And I think what we've done is we in our own lives, we have shrunk and our hearts have shrunk because all we have is the birth of Jesus. And we don't know the extended version of what's taking place. And if the extended version kind of breaks in, there's a greater sense of awe and wonder and the color of the story gets greater the tapestry grows and our vision of God grows our vision as a church grows our vision in reading the Bible grows our vision in how we treat one another grows everything expands 
All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to the Christmas story again, but we're going to listen to it and see it at the same time. So I want you to turn your ears into eyes and I want you to just sit back and listen to the story as if you're hearing it again for the first time. But we're going to do the extended, expanded version of the story. Those of you that are engineers and accountants and you don't like stories, you want propositions, just keep this in mind. We're going to go creation, fall, redemption. So you're happy. The rest of us will sit back and we're going to listen to the story, the extended version of the story. Are you with me? Okay, so the first part of the story, engineers, creation. So once upon a time, there was a place where heaven and earth met. Can you imagine such a place? Heaven and earth touched. And the meeting place was a garden. And in this garden, the Persians, Persians, I think, got it right. They called it paradise, pleasure ground. In other words, when the Persians Persians named paradise, they called paradise this heaven and earth place that met. They called it paradise because it's what they called the amusement park of their kings. Their kings had these bountiful, beautiful gardens that only a king could have. Only a king could afford it. Only a king could have the labor to cultivate it in the middle of a desert or whatever they were. But it was the amusement park of the kings and this place where heaven and earth meant called paradise was the perfect place of pleasure. It was the pleasure ground of kings. Now, near Colorado Springs, there's an area that covers 700 acres at the foot of the Rockies. And the 700 acres is an area of huge red and white sandstone rock masses that arise in very strange shapes. And they also arise almost vertically out of the ground. They've been given such names like cathedral spires and balanced rock and Indian head. And every year, thousands of tourists come to see this incredible sight. At sunrise, church service and Easter are famous. Thousands come for the church service. So what's what's this incredible place called? Those of you that are from that part of the country, you know what that place is called. What's it called? It's called the Garden of the Gods. If you were to be placed back in the ancient heaven meets earth garden, you would look at the Garden of Gods as 700 acres of crabgrass, briars and weeds. The story begins where heaven and earth meet. An access between heaven and earth and a garden. And a great king created it. A pleasure ground for kings. And he takes his heir, he takes his son, and he places him in the garden. Now listen to these ancient words. They're so old, you might not hear them. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and guard it. Now this is where we get to the point in the story where a little hint of suspicion creeps in, doesn't it? That's a strange phrase. Guard it. What in the world 
is needing to be guarded? Or why in the world is the garden needing to be guarded? Why is this original heir, this original son, this image son of the great high king, why is he given the task of guarding the garden? What's going on? What could possibly threaten such a perfect place of paradise, full pleasure ground as a garden, and have such an incredible beginning that God speaks it into being and he unites heaven and earth in such a way that it's the most beautiful and bountiful and breathtaking place in all the world ever to be? What could possibly threaten that? Almost as we ask that question and we're hearing the story again, almost as we ask the question, the answer is seen right before our eyes as we're asking the question because we see this slimy, slippery, sleazy, sinister snake slithering towards the garden. And every hiss that he makes, it's a, it's a venomous, raging hiss. And every advance, every inch, a dreadful Deadful dread just fills the earth wherever it's going as it goes towards the garden, right? Now, when this person gets to the garden, you're asking yourself, well, where did the snake come from? I mean, how does this snake even get into the story? How can he even be in this garden? How can he even be slithering towards the garden? Where does he come from? And the answer is absolutely stunning because this snake we are told, is actually came from the first place in all of creation, which was heaven. So when God actually spoke and created the creation, the first part of creation was the invisible heavens and then the visible earth. And the first creatures were these incredible living creatures that we actually get a picture of at the end of the great story in the book of Revelation, where these four living creatures that surround the throne of God like a royal praetorium guard, like the ancient Roman praetorium guard used to surround the emperor. And these these living beings surrounded the throne. And then there were 24 elders, concentric circles of overwhelming glory and holiness. And then outside of that were myriads and thousands of angels. But at the dead center was the throne room of God and it was sitting in the heavenlies. And we come to find out that this particular slithering snake was an actual cherub that stood around the throne of God. And this cherub actually was in the presence of the glory of God. He was standing like a Gabriel-like, Michael-like cherub. One of the highest angels in all the universe. And he's a snake slithering in the grass towards the garden. That's right, sweetie, a snake. Easy, it was a snake. Now, what happened to him? What happened to this beautiful creature? Well, possibly what happened was this, is that when God is creating and he announces in Genesis 1.26 and he says to his heavenly court, these heavenly beings, the 24 elders on the thrones, the myriads and myriads upon thousands of angels, and he says to them, let us make man in our own image. And very possibly this cherub, who was in the presence of the glory of God, began to see that the prized creature, the one that would rule the work of God's hands, would not be him. 
but an image-bearing son of God. And a jealous rage crept in. We know the fall in the heavenly realm took place because there's a snake slithering towards the garden. Because what's happened here is this, this cherub devolves into the devil because the cherub wants to assume the highest place of rule and dominion. Because we know that God had made a man and God had made an image bearer. And this image bearer was to be an image-like son. He was to actually look like his father and he was to actually answer back all the words that his father spoke and to loyally and lovingly keep the law and obediently take creation on his shoulders and carry it to a consummation. Now, remember, when we get into this story, we have a garden. Yes, but outside the garden, we have creation. And the scripture tells us that creation, though, is untilled. It's unworked. It's wild. But the garden was where heaven and earth touched. And what was to happen is that this son of God, this image bearing son, was to look like his father, imitate his father by working six days resting on the seventh, he was to work by his obedience and take the garden and stretch it over all of creation. And the next thing we know, we're in what's called theologically the consummation. New heavens, new earth, eternal life, glorification. There was something yet to be. But this cherub wanted to assume that place. So he's first spiritual warfare in heaven. He's kicked out, lands on earth, And when we get that command for Adam to keep the garden, it presupposes in God's mind there's about to be a confrontation between a serpent and my son. And so the question of the age at this time, and the one that all the angels are looking at now from the heavenly host, is will the son imitate his father and crush the head of the serpent? Will he obey his father? Will he choose to live by every word that comes from the mouth of his father? Or will he crave earthly food and fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And thereby listen to the voice, an alien voice, a foreign voice of a slithering serpent. And begin imitating him. Break covenant with God. Form a covenant with the serpent. That's the question and everyone's wondering what's going to happen. An epic story. Of titans clashing in the garden. A serpent slithering. This king in his garden. God says, guard it! Right? Guard it. And here comes the serpent. What's going to happen? Now, we know what happens because we are looking at the story and we see that the garden's guard has fallen asleep at his post. He's AWOL, basically. And when we see what happens, we see that the fall of man, engineers, we're now at the fall. The fall of man is quick and it's brutal. Because what we see is Adam abdicates. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he actually allows the serpent to rule over him. And then that's the big The big irony in the story, because at the end of chapter two in Genesis, we see that that Adam just gets done naming the animals 
And when he's naming the animals, he's showing that he has dominion and he actually rules over creation. He's God's vice regent. He's God's heir. He's the one that is set in the prized possession over all creation. And it's the beginning of what he will eventually do, which is now take this creation, put it on his shoulders and take it to the consummation. The seventh day rest, the Sabbath rest of God, the royal rest of God still awaiting to happen. Right. But instead, after he just gets done naming the animals. The lowest animal in all creation comes in on his belly. And instead of ruling the creature, the creature rules him. Because Adam abdicates. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he allows the serpent to actually step on him. The second thing we said is that he doesn't lead his wife. He talks. He allows Eve to talk to the serpent. There should have been no talking going on. There should have been no conversations. There should have been swift action. The only sound that should have been heard in all the garden was a man's foot stamping on a snake and crushing it to the earth and then seeing the twisting death throes of a serpent. Now, just a little side note, this is how I justify to my wife that I only have a certain amount of words in a day. And that grunts and one word phrases and sentences are an okay form of communication for a guy. I think it goes back to here. Should have been no talking, no conversation. Action is what should have been the call of the day, right? Step on the thing. We're all watching the movie. Step on him. And instead he's talking or he's allowing his wife to talk. And she's having a wonderful conversation with the snake. Right. All right. Well, Adam disobeys God and eats the forbidden fruit. He listens to the voice of his of the serpent and he obeys, imitates the serpent now, starts looking like the serpent. And all of a sudden sin enters the world. And Romans, Paul says at that moment, Adam opened the door and let sin into the world. Death came into the world and it infected the whole world and everyone in the world like a poisonous plague that infects everyone. And everyone now has it. And so we have death and we have divorce and we have distress and we have destruction that has come into the world. And we have dominating sins and addictive sins that have come into the world. And we have disease and we have suffering. And we have pain that has come into the world. We have pride and we have comparing and we have gossiping and we have slander and we have complainers that have come into the world. Sin has come into the world. And man must now die. And so the story gets real brutal real quick. And in the scene, we see God actually marching in the garden to execute judgment. And the picture there is the same one you get in Revelation. Flashes of thunder and lightning. And you get this picture of a whirlwind coming to unleash covenant curses on an unfaithful covenant servant. What should have happened is that there would have been the marching and the coming near of God to actually confirm covenant blessings on the servant. It says, hallelujah, the the chorus should have erupted. Heaven should have opened up and creation would have gone forward to the consummation. Adam would have been confirmed in righteousness. But now instead we have the dark clouds of the judgment of God coming in the garden. And he's going to crush everyone that's unholy. 
And when we get to that point, the king approaches the hiding couple. The king opens his mouth and creation immediately falls to his knees. I mean, can you imagine the creator's coming to judge all of creation? He took a prized image son and he put all of creation into this image son's hands and says, you will rule over it. And you will you will listen to every word I say and you will answer back and obey me. I mean, you have a great picture, Adam. Remember when I spoke and I spoke the world into being. I, the king, spoke. And what did the world do? It said, yes, sir. And it answered back and said, let there be. And there was. And that's the way all creation answered. He spoke. Creation answers. Spoke. Creation answers back. Spoke. Creation answers back. Adam, guard the garden. Keep it. Do not eat from any tree. The middle tree in the middle of the garden. You may eat from any tree outside. And he doesn't do this. So you have the creator coming towards this prized creation. And creation falls to its knees as the creator comes towards the creation. You have the angelic realm in an absolute stunned silence. And you have Satan over there snickering. And then the king speaks. One word created it. One word will end it. That's all it takes. Final death and destruction. And the king says, I will put enmity between you and the woman serpent. And I will put enmity between your offspring serpent and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. He will crush you. And creation on its knees can hardly hear, bear the words that it hears. Are you kidding me? Is the kingdom still going to come? Is creation still going to go forward to the consummation? Is the garden going to cover all of creation still? And you have the angels in heaven and this big, big smile breaks out over all their faces. They've never heard the word before, but now they long for it. And they long to see it. And they long to hear it. And it's the word grace. Grace. God goodness to the guilty. God goodness to the ungodly. Grace upon grace upon grace. And they can't get enough of it. And Peter says even now they look over the battlements of heaven and long to see it. Because they didn't get it. And then... You have Satan's snicker falling from his face. Because he now realizes there will be another son. There will be another image bearer. Another son of man. A better Adam. And so when the angels are saying, what in the world, how can there be grace And their answer is, is they're seen right before their eyes. And in God's holy counsel, they see there's not going to be grace because God is going to take from the dust and make 
another man. But God is going to give his own son to be that man. So it's not going to start over and let's say, well, let's just hit rewind and start this doggone thing over. What a horrible way to begin. Let's get another Adam in there and we'll call the Adam Bob this time. Maybe Bob will do better. Hit rewind, we go back to Bob. No, God knows he's going to get it right by sending his own son, not just make any son to do it. So now we have the snicker rule and Satan puts into plan. He knows that he's got a leash around his neck, but he's not going to go down not fighting. We know that Satan, because we look at the rest of the story as it unfolds, and what Satan ends up doing is he puts into, into history a long history of hostility. He's not going to go down not swinging. So when we go down to Moses and we see that the Exodus... We see that Egypt overtakes Israel, puts them into slavery so much so. What is what's the decree that's given to make sure that this promised son doesn't come? Kill all the Hebrew male children. And it extends from there all the way to when Herod says, kill all the babies in the Bethlehem region. Satan doesn't go down not swinging, right? So a history of hostilities put in place. But as the days go by in the garden, outside the heaven meets earth garden. Remember now, right when this happened, though, though creation didn't immediately get condemned, we didn't see the final and full death and destruction of the wages of sin. What we got instead was a corruption. So instead of going down to final condemnation, creation went, went sideways into a corrupted time. And the corruption is actually a grace because God has now put in place the promised child that will then take this corrupt creation and redeem it and carry it back up to its consummation. Okay? But remember now, they were kicked out of the garden. There's a flaming cherub. Remember the cherub were the initial praetorium guard that guarded God's holiness, the place that was left by Satan. Another took his place, and this one guards the way with a flaming sword. There's no way back into the garden for now. All right. So they're out in a corrupt creation. Each day passes by with increased anticipation, anticipation of the promised child. You say that three times. So we're waiting. Possibly nine months later. Let's move on in the story here. Nine months later, outside in this creation, possibly nine months later, Eve, the mother of living, says, I have gotten a man. I have gotten him. And she thinks the child has arrived. Now, how do we know this? Well, the Hebrew literal translation is, I have gotten him. And the other is, when she names her second child, who's her second child? Abel, which means hovel, which means what? Vapor, mist. It means futility. In other words, after this one, who the heck cares about the rest? How shocked. What must that have been like? Maybe, maybe when the judgment to the woman was given and it was said, you will bear pain in your childbirth, that she got the full picture of that. In other words, it's not just physical pain. You will have the pain of having children who are sinful, who will break your heart, and they will live in a fallen world. 
And all of a sudden, the one ends up being Cain. And Cain kills Havel. Right? So now we're moving through the story, and every generation is looking for the child. How do we know? Because genealogies are like crazy in Genesis, aren't there? I mean, so-and-so begat so-and-so. And not only the genealogies, because we're trying to find out who is this child? When will this child go? Is this person the child? The genealogies are telling the story, but what's the other phrase used throughout Genesis? And so-and-so looked like his father. Another hint. So we have genealogies going like crazy through Genesis, but we also have he looked like his father. And the issue was, what kind of father did he have? Did he have a righteous father? Or did he have an unrighteous father? And we have two offsprings shooting down through human history. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And they interlocked and they go like this throughout human history. Right. Well, it's interesting. By the time we get to Noah, this is what Noah's father says of Noah. Listen to this. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, referring to his son, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's dad thinks his son is the one. Or a type of the one, at least. Now, remember what God said of Noah? God said, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, most of us get a little apoplectic about what just was said there. Because quickly we go, well, wait a minute, you know, no one's righteous. No, not even one. And we want to say, come on. He was a sinner too. He's saved by grace too. And we end up missing what the story is telling us at that point. Because the first step in the story, when you look at Noah, you have to take it for what its point is. And the first point of the story about Noah, when it says that Noah was a righteous man and a blameless man, and on that basis he went into the ark, and on that ark saved the whole world, the point of the story is that God saves the world through the righteousness of one man. That's the point of the story. And what Noah ends up doing is pointing us to the promised child. By his righteousness, the world will be saved. Okay? I have lots to say about that, but we're going to move when we get back into Daniel about how to read your Bible rightly. If the text, if you look at the text and the text and the very character itself says something that's so strident like that and says by the right, Noah was righteous and blameless. Or you get to Abraham and it says that based on his righteousness, God did this. We don't want to immediately start applying these people to ourselves. You don't want to immediately say, oh, here he's a fellow fallen worshiper just like me. So I can I can get a lesson from him here and apply it to me, because if you do, you're going to fall on your face because you're going to say, well, wait a minute. I'm not that way. But if the first step in a story is to go to the redemptive storyline and possibly the main character is furthering the storyline first, then you begin to read it rightly and you'll get a point like by the righteousness of one man, the world is saved. And then when you read passages like Noah gets drunk when he gets out of the boat, flagrant immorality takes place and you go, yep, there he's just like us. He needs to be saved by grace, right? All right, move on. So more generations go by. Moses, almost destroyed as a child. David, the child king, destroys a destroyer. Then we have 400 silent years with no word from God. And the issue at that time is not whether he will come, but will he come? 
When we have this 400 years of silence, now everybody's asking, where is the child? Is this child going to come? And then it gets down to the point where it's not even if he will come. No one remembers who he is. And all of a sudden you have Jacques talking to his little sister and his brother and saying, Mom and Dad are losing it. The Da Vinci Code stuff's getting to him. There is no super child, Hiram and Joshua. It's all myth. We haven't heard from God in 400 years. And then in heaven, Gabriel, standing at the throne of God, the praetorium cherub, standing where Satan fell, God says, it's time, go. And we have an angel, Gabriel, going to a girl named Mary and saying, Do not be afraid, Mary. You will bear a son, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the child to be born will be holy. He will be the Son of God. And watch what Mary says in response. Because what Mary says in response is what her son will say in response to his whole life. It summarizes the epic, the extended version of the Christmas story. Look at verse 38. I want you to read this with me. Not out loud, but just follow me. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So when the child confronts Satan in the wilderness, remember when this child is baptized and when he's baptized, his public ministry begins the moment that he actually begins to publicly go forward with the son of man, the son of God role. What's the first thing that happens to him? He's taken into the wilderness where the serpent crawls in. And this time, will this son of man step on his head or not? And this son of man says to the serpent, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to his word. Stomp. And then we go later when this child lives a perfect, obedient life. And he says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to what his word says. And then when this child is lifted up on a cross, he says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to his word. And then when the son is lifted up from the grave, After suffering on the cross and reigns with the right hand of God at the Most High, he says, let it be to me. I am your servant, according to all the words that you have said. This is the child of the Christmas story. The Son of God. Fully man, so he could represent you. So that he could take creation to the consummation. So that he could bring in the kingdom of God. So that he could take your sin and your death upon his shoulders. And so that he could rise for you. As well as die for you. As well as live for you. This is the Son of God. 100% God because only God can take the infinite and holy justice and judgment of God upon himself. And only God can satisfy God. And only God can ultimately rise from the dead victorious. 
So we have this child, this story, 100% God, 100% man. This is the Son of God. And so the call to us is, this is the child we're to trust in right now. This is the child we're to trust in, the promised one. To trust Him for the forgiveness of sin. And to trust Him to actually purchase the perfect, loyal, loving, law-keeping obedience that we desperately need because we don't have it. And if you're, in, if you're hearing this for the first time, that's the only way you can stand before a holy God. Trust this Son of God. And those of you that right now are struggling with God's favor, you're struggling with His acceptance, you're struggling with feeling close to Him, do not mark your barometer by how well you're doing spiritually. Mark your acceptance and mark His favor upon you with how well His Son did for you. And so now you look outside of yourself and you say, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel good about my relationship with God. I feel so torn up inside. My life is a mess and I deal with sin and I deal with sadness and a broken heart and I struggle with temptation. I struggle with depression. What is your only hope and salvation if you're a Christian? It's to look at the Son of God again. And only His righteousness... His law-keeping, His faithful witness as the Son of Adam and the Son of God, that's the basis of your closeness to God. That's the basis of your acceptance with God. That's the basis of you feeling the smile and pleasure of God upon you. If you shift off that, all other ground is sinking sand. You also get the presence of God to stand with you no matter what. And you get the hope of a future paradise. So the garden will come. We will go back to the garden. We're not going back to creation. We're not going back here. We're not even going back here to a creation that's not corrupted. We're actually going forward to a garden where heaven and earth meets called paradise. The pleasure ground of kings. That's what you were made for. That's what I was made for. And it's all bound up in that child on the Christmas story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is an extended version to the story. It doesn't just start all of a sudden in a manger. But it started way back in the ancient world. The original creation the original Adam in the garden. So, Lord, thank you for sending us. Jesus, do open our eyes to see him. Those of us that do not know him, would you break in and cause us to trust him? Those of us that are struggling, would you strengthen our faith in him even now? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.